0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, the podcast that covers every alien, dinosaur, folklore, and, you know, dragon movie that was made prior to the release of 1993's Jurassic Park, a film which changed the world of dinosaur cinema forever. We are here to discover what came before. We are actually covering our very first Toho Studios film this week, and that is The Three Treasures. The reason why we're covering that is every two weeks, I like to hold a poll on my Twitter. And the poll always gets more votes than listens to the episode, which, you know, is interesting. But okay, that's fine. And the the reason we put up a lot of stuff up for vote there and kind of try and figure out what people want to listen to. This was actually not one of the options. There was an option for a dragon movie and there was an option for a Godzilla Beach Party movie and with, I believe it was like 78 votes, they were perfectly tied, which was kind of insane. So I thought I would look and try to come up with a movie that fits both categories, which kind of led us to The Three Treasures, as it does feature Yamato Norochi, which is a, a very famous dragon from Japanese folklore, which with eight heads, and he appears on a beach, and he was made in the Godzilla style. So there you go. It matches everything. This was actually Toho's 1,000th production. Or at least it was billed as such. There seems to be a little bit of a discussion as to whether or not it actually was the 1,000th production. Uh, but it was billed as such and was given a huge release. The studio of Toho, you probably mainly know them in the West due to two cinematic exports, Akira Kurosawa and Godzilla. Today's movie combines both of those elements. Kind of. The Three Treasures, or Birth of Japan, or Age of the Gods, depending on what source you're going with, was released in 1959. Unfortunately, there are a bevy of English titles for the movie, as, aside from a very brief theatrical run the film has not really received a significant western release. This is a little surprising, as it stars Toshiro Mifune, who is widely considered one of the greatest actors who ever lived, and it's directed by director Hiroshi Inagi, whose work has been translated and released stateside. Most notably, Inagi directed the Samurai Trilogy, which is a big hit in the criterion circles. I kind of suspect the main reason the film's lack of release here is probably due to the fact that it's incredibly Japanese. The film is seeped in Shinto mythology, a religion which is virtually unknown in the West. However, even if you are unaware of the religious history, the film is still really, really good and is a pretty epic film. The story is complex and layered, with characters who are in constant states of flux our main lead yamato takaru 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 apologies i will probably mispronounce things as this is not my native language he begins the film as prince ouso so he has both moments of grace and pity and then moments of sheer ferocity so there is a conflict at play and the character work by Mifune is really one of his best performances because you can kind of see how he's kind of balancing his nature versus his love of his father versus his love of his nation and what he should do as uh, as trying to be the best person he can be. And the effects are done by the legendary Eiji Tsuburaya. This is the very first Tsuburaya film we've had on this podcast but it certainly will not be the last. He had a tremendous influence on the world of Japanese special effects, which is commonly called tokusatsu. In the West, he is likely best known for bringing the complex miniatures of the early Godzilla films to life. These movies were way more complicated, way more complex, and way more artful than a man in a suit crushing cardboard buildings. Don't let people tell you that that's what those films were. We'll get into it, but there was a lot of care, work, and artistry put into those models and those miniatures. And to simply dismiss them as cardboards uh, is extremely disrespectful to the work that these men put in. And E.G. Tsuburaya was normally the head of that effects team. He's more than just the man who did Godzilla, though. This film really showcases just how brilliantly he could bring to life the world of the Fantastic. The plot of The Three Treasures involves a cold, unfeeling father looking for any excuse to send away his son, in hopes his son will die and never return. Our hero, who begins the film uh, exiling one of his brothers, and because of this exile, he is sent off to war. Basically, his father was looking for any excuse to kind of get him out, and he sends him to war, and he wants him to completely stay at war and eventually die at war. Through the course of the film, our prince gets the name Yamato Takiru. He is the son of the only woman his father ever truly loved, and during Yamato Takiru's birth, His mother died, and his father really only sees a painful memory and not a son. This leads to a bevy of battles and hardships as Takeru slowly realizes the truth about his father's hatred and the cost of war. The story of Yamato is intercut with the legends of the god of storms, Susana-o. Susana-o is also played by Mifuni, and in these legendary flashbacks, the parallel between the two men is clear. It is actually in one of Susana O's flashbacks that we witness the appearance of Orochi, the eight-headed dragon. Which brings us to our dinosaur breakdown. Or in this case, dinosaur, no wait, dragon, folklore, a Orochi has his origins dating back to the earliest written Japanese mythology, and this is all according to yokai.com, appearing in the Kojiki and the Niyongi. The tale is nearly identical to what we see on screen, as the eight-headed beast, is, uh, who is Orochi, is tricked into drinking sake by the god Susana-o, oh and is defeated due to his drunkenness. The original tale is a lot bloodier than this version put to screen, and there is no Jason and the Argonauts esque fight with the beast in the folklore. Pretty much the beast kind of, you know, falls asleep due to drunkenness, and he just gets hacked and hacked and hacked and hacked until there are rivers of blood, which is pretty crazy. Uh, Similar to European folklore, though, Orochi has kind of just spent his life stealing the daughters of various families so there is the the idea of sacrificing a maiden to quell a beast uh, even in japanese folklore and susana O comes across a family that only has one daughter remaining so in exchange for defeating the beast susana O is like well i want the final daughter to be my bride if i can defeat the beast so he defeats the beast and that's when he finds one of the three treasures of japan which is a sword named the Kusanagi, which is hidden in one of Orochi's tales. And it is said to still be handed down to every new Emperor of Japan to this day. Although some believe it to be lost at sea. The history of what the actual three treasures are in Japanese folklore is and Japanese reality is is a little complicated and probably best dealt with on a different podcast. Um, we are going to talk about this from a filmmaking perspective and from a narrative perspective. Uh, but you do have to keep in mind that this is not my native culture. I'm sure I'm getting things wrong. I've done some research, but I'm not overly endorsed and engrossed in Shinto mythology. Uh, so I don't really want to kind of turn, talk out of turn and declare things about a religion that I'm not overly knowledgeable about. Uh, If you are interested, there are definitely resources out there and they are worth reading because they are fascinating. The cinematic version of Orochi was actually designed by artist Akira Watanabe and he also designed the original King Ghidorah. At least that's according to David Callet's book, A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. This version of Orochi is almost always kind of... Dismissed out of hand and just called a trial version of Ghidorah. While I certainly see that as true, I do think that kind of underserves the puppetry and the work that is on display in The Three Treasures, and especially kind of dismisses the film's other special effects moments, which are actually truly outstanding. The. Uh, the work in the film, the puppet itself of Orochi, is not the greatest puppet I've ever seen. It's certainly not the worst. Um, it does seem to kind of be less agile than I'm used to seeing E.G. Subarai's work. However, it is filmed in such a way and is scored in such a way... That makes the film all the more exciting and really kind of builds upon a a less than stellar, admittedly a less than stellar prop. Uh, Although they, they do do some interesting things with that fight scene. Notably, there is a tangling of the heads within the brambles there's like a big tree that they get tangled in and there's kind of like a back and forth of some sword swipes there's a giant prop tail which we get to see Toshiro mufune ride and stab and stab and stab and and cut open and get the uh, get the legendary kusanagi um so there's there's a lot more going on here than just staring at an immobile puppet which is kind of how it feels when some people talk about This version of Orochi. Uh, This is not the last time Orochi will appear on this podcast. He's going to come up again and again, especially in Japanese folklore and especially in Japanese giant monster movies. Uh, The history of Orochi is kind of the history of... Japanese kaiju uh, to begin with that this is seemingly the very first Japanese giant monster so this is the very first dai kaiju in Japanese mythology and history and therefore his existence is very influential in the later stories that would be told using this kind of frame now that that's kind of an overview I think that the effect scene let's just get the effect scene out of the way, the part that probably most of you are here for, given that this film is kind of related and focused upon the giant. I, th- th- it's very short. The appearance of Yamato no Orochi is probably about five to six minutes of this three-hour film. Now, there are other films that are under the classification of kaiju movies, and they have just a short of uh, screen time certainly uh, Orochi has a bigger influence on the plot and more to do with the film as a whole than say Maguma in the film Gorath which he is a giant walrus who appears for about maybe maybe four minutes and just gets completely annihilated by the team who were trying to move the planet Gorath is an interesting film I will probably cover it just because Maguma's in it. So that's nice. But this is a film that is much more akin to, I would almost say, A Clash of the Titans. I see it commonly called the uh, Ten Commandments of Japan. And and while I certainly think I can see where the epic scope and the epic ideas uh, do kind of lead to that comparison, but I almost feel that clash of the titans is an even better comparison as in clash of the titans you actually get to see the gods more and you get to see mount olympus uh, from the greek gods and in this film you do get a number of stories that showcase the japanese gods and they're kind of framed and in a very similar way and there's a lot of very recognizable japanese actors who play the roles of of the gods, similar to how Clash of the Titans has a all-star cast in its Greek pantheon, there is uh, an interesting parallels to be made with the kind of the unfeeling father and the hateful, spiteful father in Japanese folklore. Uh, it seems to be a trope that is very prevalent in Japan in general. Uh, certain elements of the story, uh, I am not a fan of Neon Genesis Evangelion, but when you read more about Orochi, uh, tales like Rivers of Blood, for example, when they talk about what happens after Orochi is defeated, that really does bring to mind uh, many sequences in both the movie Shin Godzilla and other pieces of Hidakiano's work in the Evangelion series. The, the uncaring father, the father figure in the three treasures film, not hundred percent sure about three treasures as a story, as a folklore tale. This is only going by the film itself in the, in the film. He very much reminded me of Shinji's father in the Evangelion series, a man who is just completely uninterested in his son and seems to be very despondent in general, a man with many brides and mistresses who has forever been without a love. Fascinating. Another another connection that I kind of made while watching this for Western audiences is Game of Thrones, specifically the books rather than the show itself. In, in the show, there was a large amount of criticism In terms of Bran's storyline, which is a character who in the books, most of his stories and his chapters are actually devoted to learning more about the folklore of Westeros, which is the province in which uh, Game of Thrones takes place, and learning about the background and back stories that kind of build the world that was not done in the TV series, and as such, people kind of found most of his plot line a little boring and tedious. They did eventually near the final seasons tackle a little bit, but this film does what Brand's chapters do in the book, but does it in a visual medium, and by that I mean there will be characters discussing folklore, and then you'll actually get to see visually the folklore being discussed. The folklore is directly tied back to the plights of our main hero, Yamato Takeru, as he is clearly meant to be Susana-O's descendant or maybe a reincarnation. Again, I'm not overly familiar with the Shinto religion, so apologies if reincarnation is not a thing in that religion, and as such that could be seen as offensive. So if you are of that religion, I apologize. Um, but he has a lot in common with O, oh, including coming back to life when he dies uh, as a as a white bird, which implies some sort of deity-esque nature. A- another familiarity with Game of Thrones is just there is a lot of politics going on in this movie. A lot of it is in the background, but there is a backstabbing, betrayals, a lot of infidelity happening you know it a lot of parallels there there's a dragon but i mean the dragons are used very differently uh, and and i and i just think that the plot and general way of storytelling for medieval stories seems to really have a consistent tropes i guess consistent tropes consistent storytelling elements between uh cultures as you know much of game of thrones is based off of european culture and european history uh but that kind of feudal era japan had a lot of similar tales within it at least if this film is to be believed the effects work aside from the big blowout of orochi is stupendous there were a larger and revamped version of Toho's optical printer. Eiji Tsuburaya had an optical printer, and he kind of modified it to work better with color pictures and to work better in the widescreen format. And you can really tell that they gave him a good budget and that he had a better optical printer and optical sensibility Especially when you compare, there is a scene near the end of the film where a volcano erupts, and you see many people kind of get engulfed by the volcano, and engulfed by both water encroaching upon them and lava, and it looks heads and tails better than a very similar sequence in godzilla raids again in which uh, a group of criminals are consumed by a flow of water and it, and it and it's not a great effect uh here it works a lot better and you can tell that the optical elements have really been improved um fascinatingly enough um apparently teriyoshi Nakano's very first job was as an assistant director on this film at least according to his interview with Stuart Galbraith in the book Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo that book uh just side side story that book is essential that book will come up a lot in this podcast there are a number of interviews with various people who worked throughout the Japanese film industry of the time, and the interviews are outstanding. The information within is outstanding, and while the fil- the book itself is, is very much out of print, you can still find digital versions sold on the publishing website. The original publishers who wrote the book um, and own the rights to the book, have made a digital version available that you can purchase, and it's well worth the money. It's not very expensive, and uh, keeps the book and information kind of flowing. Uh, but anyway, so in that book, Teriyoshi Nakano, Nakano, who did a... You will probably know Nakano's effect work if you're a big Godzilla fan. Near the late 70s period of Godzilla films, uh, and a little bit before that, too, I believe. But he he was known for doing the effects work with a lot of explosions. Teriyoshi Nakano loved his explosions. And every time he was doing the effects work for a movie, you can bet things would blow up real good. But apparently one of his first roles was actually as an assistant director for this film. Um, apparently it was extremely hot on set. And he was not really used to working with all the lights. Uh, apparently the director, who was Kurosawa, liked to pan and pull focus. And the film we used then wasn't as sensitive, so they had to use a lot more light. Uh, apparently in the summertime, it was enough, even with, hot enough even without the lights. So when temperatures started to rise outside, it would become a living hell in the studio. The heat from the lights would burn the actor's wigs. So as assistant director, one of my most important jobs was to put wet towels on wet towels photography. I was basically an intermediary between the special effects teams and the principal team on that film. His job was to schedule actors. It was the height of Subarai's career. He had 90 people on the effects staff. It was a happening work environment, but it was a very hard job. So that is, obviously, uh, I kind of paraphrased a little bit there, and that was not an exact quote, but I will, again, recommend you go read Nakano's interview in Stuart Galbraith's book, as it's really informative, and I was very surprised to hear that he worked on, on this film. As a whole, though, there's not a whole lot of information about this film in... Japanese, uh, sorry, in English. Not in, much at all. It is very sparse, unfortunately. Uh, even in the book, uh, uh, August Ragon's book, uh, E.G. Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, there's a really only about a few paragraphs in regards to this film. Uh, that's no no shame or no shade upon Ragon's book. Uh, August Ragon did an amazing book, and I do think that if you can find it, E.G. Tsuburaya's Masters of Monsters is another must read novel about this time period of Japanese special effects. Uh, however, at, at this point in time, in the 19, 1959, like Terry Oshinakono just said in Stuart Galbraith's book, like this was the height of E.G. Subarai's career. And as such, he was doing a lot. And his effects teams were doing a lot. So there was not a lot of time in Ragon's book to really focus and kind of uh, delve into what was happening on the set of three treasures as there were like five other films that, you know, Subaru was working on or soon to be working on. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you're writing a book on somebody with a, as huge of a career as EG Subaru, you really do have to unfortunately kind of pick and choose what you cover. And unfortunately, since three treasures is kind of lost the time it's not not the focus, and it hasn't been the focus in many, many years. I, I've only really the only reason I've heard of this film is due to a handful of podcasts about various giant monster movies and it, inevitably they well cover three treasures. Uh, however even then like there's not a whole lot of information out there they can talk about the folklore and i do think they have talked about the folklore and it's really amazing there is a kaiju transmissions episode which features uh, kaiju cast host kyle yount which is incredibly informative i will definitely link to that in the show notes and it is well worth the read as they really really dive deep into the background and the history of the mythology of the story of yamato Takeru, and that's kind of why i don't really want to delve into that too much in this podcast as i do feel like it's been done better elsewhere getting back to the movie uh, i i love this movie i thought this movie was a true epic in every sense of the word i think akira Ifukube does a br- absolutely brilliant score I think that there is such a breath of fresh air in terms of monster movie watching when I experienced this film, uh, as it is such an epic. There is so much work put on screen. You can tell this is one of those times when they weren't slashing the budget, when they were really letting the actors, directors, and producers were all at the top of their game and were given time to breathe, or at least that's how it felt. Uh, it, it's never easy wrangling that many actors in a screen, uh, in a scene, as, you know, it's really hard to capture a true epic scale. And I think this film does it really, really well. And you can tell they really kind of pulled out all the stops for this film. Uh, I, I found the, the plot extremely moving. Uh, Toshiro to Mifune really does give a lot to the performance of Yamato Takaru. And you really kind of feel for him and you kind of feel the betrayal that he goes through the love that he experiences and just the the sheer sense of survival that he has the survival instinct where every time something new is thrown at him and he is expected to fail he just gets back up and keeps going and keeps fighting and it's a it's a very fascinating character and to see him kind of grow and change as he kind of sees the the horrors of war really kind of elevates the film in a way and makes this film one of the most complex monster movies I've ever seen to call it a monster movie is a bit of a stretch as again Orochi really only appears for a very limited amount of time but uh, putting it in that category uh, instantly kind of elevates it to the top of the pack these are characters that have a lot more going on under the surface than you know than is typical now that also is due to the running time. It's not a short movie by any stretch of the imagination. This is a three-hour movie, so there is time to kind of build characters and build a a, a really complex story in this, uh, as opposed to as opposed to other movies uh, of of the same vein, like you know any Godzilla movie. Really, uh, they they are relatively short films. And they don't have a lot of time to kind of waste on character development. And I I, I don't mean waste in a derogatory, they should just get to the monster action. I mean, they only are really shooting for about an hour and a half when making those movies. And as such, you can't really have a lot of slow moments. Um, Another thing about this movie that really was just insane was the cast. Like, there are so many giant Japanese stars, especially if you're familiar with the the Toho and Akira Kurosawa films. I mean, we've got Takeshi Shimura, who is in Akira. He's in Gojira. We've got Akihiko Hirata. He's also in the original Gojira but he's also in a bajillion other things. We've got Kumi Mazino. We've got Misa Yuhira. We've got Akira Takarada. We've got Akira Kubo. All of these are names that you are going to know, uh, especially as we go forward in this podcast and as I kind of talk about these giant monster movies and these kind of the Toho Studio films. I mean, you've got Jun Tazaki in there. It's uh, it's really quite an amazing Array and uh, everyone is at the top of their game. There's not a bad performance in this entire movie, and it has so many recognizable faces. Especially if you have spent a lot of time with this genre, with this style of film, there is no, there's no moment wasted. I would say, and even though it is a long movie, it doesn't really feel like a long movie. Your attention is always right on the center of that that screen you're always engrossed and you're always moved um especially if you kind of fall as into the story as i do this is not your typical movie there is a lot to there's a lot to unpack if you want to unpack it um if you're interested in just the japanese religion or you know anything about shintoism this is a must if you're a fan of cinema this is a must if you just want to kind of be a completist for every giant monster movie ever made this is a plus you know there's really no negatives for this film i think even for its time and for its uh, its placement in japanese folklore i was even really impressed with the the way that the film treats the female characters and how um, you know the 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 main character of Yamato Teikuru is really kind of meant to be a faith person. He's he's very much faithful and believes that women are people. You know what I mean? Like, um, so for example, so like a big a big thing in World War Two Japan was comfort wives, which is basically Chinese, uh, sex slaves. When they would, when Japan was in world war two, when Japan had invaded China, they would take women and basically force them to have sex with the, the men. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but it was, it was rape and it was, and it was awful. And there was this kind of disposable nature to, um, you know, captured women in the imperial japan so seeing a movie like this where they have a very blatant presentation of women to yamato Tekaru and he's like this is gross this is disgusting get out of here to the men who brought him the 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 the, the to be sex slave and he frees the women and i mean it's not like this is going to be a this is not an incredibly feminist film there's certainly Um, a lot to criticize in that regard but to see um such a such a blatant refusal to be comfortable with the history of comfort wives you know is uh is very uh, is very moving and is a very important step in in japan's kind of moving past the uh the sins of world war ii so yeah i think that's I think I've kind of talked about all all I all I want to and all I can right now. I mean, this is a film that really, if you really want to dive into it, you could talk for hours and days and months. You know, there's there. This is not a, a film that should be forgotten. This is a film that is really worthy of rediscovery. If you have any ability to get this localized and sent to you know sent here in the states with a proper transfer and a beautiful hd like that would be that would be amazing because there's a lot of brilliant cinematography work in this movie and there's a great a lot of great work in general it's a beautiful movie and i was really moved by it oh yeah orochi is pretty cool too so thank you for joining me on another solo episode of triassic park uh, as i said uh this is actually the first solo episode since we had our intro like our very first episode so We'll see how this goes. Let me know what you think. You can almost always email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Wine Movie nerd. Uh, we also have a Patreon. We are on Patreon at milkshakesandmimosas. Uh, if you look that up on Patreon, you can find us. And right now, uh, we only have one patron. Thank you, Joe. And he has kind of requested we focus on dinosaur talk. So if you're at all into dinosaur stuff, you should... Hop onto our Patreon, and you can uh, enjoy some dinosaur stuff and soon-to-be Archie stuff once we get a few more patrons and kind of open up. Uh, Ideally, I would like to take the aforementioned polls uh, that I talked about on Twitter onto Patreon. Uh, Again, can't really do that with only one person, so hopefully if we can get like five people on there, then we have a sturdy base to kind of start polls, and they can kind of lead us to what we'll cover in the future. Uh, so as always you can uh, follow us on any of the aforementioned places online. We are found wherever podcasts are found. Thank you and have a great day. Goodbye.